You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone. It is very appropriate that tonight is Yom Yerushalayim, the day celebrating the reunification of Jerusalem and the liberation of the Western Wall and the Temple Mount, because we're going to be speaking about Rabbi Abraham Yitzchak Cook, who is the who was the chief rabbi, the first chief rabbi of Jerusalem uh, in the modern era. And there's a story told about uh, a student of Rabbi Cook, student and close friend, Rabbi Ari Levin, who was known as the Tzaddik, the righteous man of Jerusalem. And Rabbi Ari Levin was assaulted because he was the friend of Rabbi Cook. Someone attacked him in synagogue, ripped off his tefillin while he was praying, and rattled him terribly, but he did not react. And as he was walking home with someone who was also critical of Rabbi Cook, you know, he said, oh, you know, uh, I know it was inappropriate, but you know, you are friends with Rabbi Cook. And so he said to him, do you think it was a good thing that I didn't react, that I didn't fight back? And the man said, yes, I think it was. It was very noble of you, very pious of you. And Rabbi Levin said, I learned that from Rabbi Cook, the person who you are critical of. So Rabbi Cook, Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Cook, was a complex figure, a controversial figure. I have to uh, admit that he is one of the most difficult figures to try and uh, get a hook, kind of get a grasp on. And it was challenging. Uh, preparing a talk about him. Now, there are many contradictions. He was a theologian of religious Zionism, yet he never really joined the religious Zionist political movement. He was ultra-Orthodox, but he reached out to extremely secular people. He was a legalist, and yet at the same time, he was a poet and a mystic. He was a halachist, and he was a Kabbalist. He was a universalist, a vegetarian, saw the good in socialism, and at the same time, he taught about the uniqueness of the Jewish people and the land of Israel all over, all, over all other peoples and all over other lands. So let's look at some of his biography as we start to unweave who this complex scholar, rabbinic figure, uh, creative personality was. So his beginnings go back to the mid-1800s. He was born in the Pale of Settlement. His father was a uh, Lithuanian scholar, studied at the Volozhin Yeshiva, where he would study. And his mother was descendant from a Chabad family. So already you see within his lineage, these two very divergent streams. He was an Ilui, a genius, uh, what we call today a nerd. He spent his youth in books. And by the age of 15, he was sent off to study with some of the uh, greater Talmudic masters. And uh, he went from there as a young man to the yeshiva in Volozhin. Now, it's hard to describe what Volozhin was. Remember, this was an era, an era when the Haskalah, 
the Enlightenment was raging across Eastern Europe. It had hit later than Western Europe. So many young Jews were being enthralled with philosophy, literature, socialism, exploring all sorts of ideas and knowledge that had been previously closed off to them. And Vlazhin, you could liken perhaps to a uh, Berkeley in the 1960s. Uh, not quite that radical, but because it was a traditional yeshiva, what we call today ultra-Orthodox, uh, the great dean, the Nitziv, uh, was um, a giant scholar, a little out of the box as well. And Volozhin attracted the great intellects of the time, many of them who were pietists like Rabbi Cook, many who were dedicated traditional scholars, and many of them who were out of the box, and some of them even Maskelin. Uh, Bialik studied there. And uh, uh, when he was there, Rabbi Cook befriended Micha Joseph Berdyshevsky, who would go on to become one of the Hebrew literary revival writers, uh, who himself came from a Chabad background, but turned more towards the Haskalah, towards the Jewish Enlightenment. And while we'll see that Rabbi Cook explored many areas of thought and was open to all sorts of experiences and people in the world, he remained firmly rooted in the Torah, in his traditionalism, and, uh, and never, never swerved from there, even though he was accused of it. So uh, he was married uh, after two years in Velozhin to the daughter of the Adaret, who was himself a great giant scholar and saw much promise and special qualities in this young man. He went to live with his family. The Adaret had gone, had a very difficult life being the rabbi in smaller towns, which was no simple feat, even though they were smaller, they were difficult. It was a pale of settlement. They struggled financially. Nine of his 13 children passed away at, uh, uh, at a young age in their, in their childhood. And they found themselves living in the courtyard of a hospital, sleeping on chairs. And so his father-in-law told him, it's time you have to go find a livelihood. Rabbi Cook hadn't even told him that he had been ordained by the, one of the great rabbis of the yeshiva, Rabbi Michal Epstein, author of the Arach HaShulchan. And um, uh, because of his humility and because he didn't want to be pushed into the rabbinate, but he saw that there was uh, no other choice. And so he went on to become a rabbi in a small shtetl. Uh, the Chafetz Chaim encouraged him, the great pious sage uh, of the generation encouraged him. And um, tragically, his wife passed away after a year and a half. Uh, already having a child, he quickly married her cousin. And uh, while he wrote about his first wife, even after that, he remained close with his first father-in-law uh, throughout his life. And uh, he moved up in positions. He became a rabbi of a larger town and moved to Lithuania. And um, in that position, he started writing. And we'll, as we go through his history, we'll talk about his ideas and his writings, which talked about a passion for Zion and for Israel, for the holiness of the land, for the beginnings of the stirrings of the era of redemption. Remember, 
as well as being the era of the Haskalah, this was the era of the beginning of the Zionist movement. Started in the 1880s, the Chibat Zion, the traditionalist Zionists. And then in the late 1890s, Theodor Herzl launched the Zionist Congress, which was more socialist movement and political. And Rav Kook, who would, one would have thought would have been a natural to integrate into that movement, never went to the Zionist Congress until much later and did not uh, shied away from any political affiliations. And so it was a big surprise that he was invited to become the rabbi of Jaffa in Palestine. His father-in-law, the Adarit, had been brought to Jerusalem a few years before to be the um, second to the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, or leader of the community there, who was very elderly and was being groomed to replace him. Tragically, his father-in-law, the Adarit, passed away four years before the, the senior rabbi in Jerusalem and never took that position. But certainly his being in Palestine uh, was probably one of the factors that uh, encouraged Rabbi Cook to take the position. Before he left, one of the leaders of the Chibat Zion, of the early settlements, went to visit him. And they were skeptical because he had no political affiliations with Zionism. So Rabbi Yitzchak Nissenbaum said after meeting him, spending three days with him, he said, I saw before me no ordinary rabbi following well-worn paths, but a man of spirit, paving his own way. He had not found it yet, but he was searching for it. And Rabbi Nissenbaum predicted or saw in him great things that were to follow. When Rabbi Cook arrived in Jaffa, he particularly went out of his way to make connections with the secular Zionists. And this was very much out of mold of the traditional rabbinic leadership in Palestine. The Yishuv, the old Yishuv, as it was called, the traditional uh, community, had uh, been there for hundreds, thousands of years, but really had a very non-political uh, outlook. They were supported by Jews from outside of Israel. They were ultra, ultra-Orthodox and shied away from anything that deviated from absolute Torah. So when this young rabbi came, he spoke in Hebrew, first of all, which was a departure from the Yiddish. Many of the early political Zionists spoke Yiddish. Remember, this was before Ben Yehuda started developing the language. He went out and he toured the agricultural settlements. He went out to, out to them. And in his view, he saw that the farmers were sympathetic to religion. Remember, this was still the first aliyah of more traditional people. And going out and seeing this, he expressed his love for the land. He said, I could kiss every stone in the land and even the mules on the way. He went out on Shabbat. Instead of giving rebuke, he would go out and talk to the workers and he would walk them home, encouraging them to keep the Shabbat, which some of them did as he left. He said, come. We'll do a third Shabbat meal together, and they would go home. So his approach was one, as one of love and one of reaching out and building bridges. He even reached out to the sports clubs, and we'll talk about his view of the value of physical development as well as spiritual. And by the way, uh, much of this is taken from a uh, great biography of Rabbi Cook uh, by uh, Yehuda Mirsky, 
And he said that Rabbi Cook in Jaffa fought some of the cr crime and some of the prostitution. And he said he got on the wrong side of some of the bad elements. And the fact that he was friends with the guys in the sports club helped because they would stick up for him and defend him, literally physically. A few years after he arrived, Theodore Herzl passed away. Sorry, three months after he arrived. And he, he, he was in a difficult dilemma because he was looking over his right shoulder, uh, not wanting to, uh, to incur the ire of the traditional rabbis in Jerusalem. And at the same time, he was reaching out to the Zionists. And so he, uh, he, he decided he was going to eulogize Herzl and very carefully wove a path where he did not mention Herzl by name, but he set out part of his world vision, which was that there were two stages of the redemption. The first one was the Messiah, the son of Joseph, which would be the physical redemption of the Jewish people. The second one, the Messiah, the son of King David, uh, which would be the spiritual redemption. And he said that, uh, Basically, that Herzl and political Zionism was the Mashiach ben Yosef, certainly a radical view for traditionalists. He continued his connection to those who were less religious. One in, uh, in one story, there was a doctor who was called on Shabbat. He was afraid that some of the traditional Jews in Yafo would look askance at him or even harass him. So Rabbi Cook walked next to the carriage with him because a physician, if he's called to treat someone which might be in danger of life, of course, the laws of Sabbath are suspended. So Rabbi Cook went with him on the Sabbath to show solidarity. In certain Jewish law issues, he found room and tried to be flexible. Uh, this might seem like a small detail, but there was a question of whether one could use sesame oil on the Passover which was a staple. And the traditional rabbis had banned it, even though it really wasn't a kitniot, wasn't really a legume. But they said, no, it was not allowed. Rabbi Cook permitted it, much to the ire of the more traditionalist rabbis, but he said, I can find no basis for it being forbidden. We don't want to put undue hardships on our traditional or non-religious brethren, and so it must be permitted. In a much more sweeping and larger critical issue, there is the law in the Torah of the sabbatical year, not just for professors to take off a year. It originated in ancient Israel. Every seven years, the land would have to lie fallow and not be cultivated. And this was an extreme hardship for these farmers who were barely eking out subsistence from the land and were on the brink of being close to hunger and possible starvation if they didn't have any crops for the year, which were forbidden to be planted for this sabbatical year. Rabbi Cook ruled that the sabbatical this year is a rabbinic, uh, in our times is a rabbinic injunction, and therefore he permitted selling the land to non-Jews for the year so that Jews could continue to work. And once again, uh, making the traditionalist rabbis very upset, but he stuck to his guns and remained open to that community.
Rabbi Cook's theology also encompassed an incredible spectrum. And he, his whole theology encompassed many different divergent viewpoints and those of the non-religious. Um, let's talk about first his, uh, his view on revolutions. So he saw in the young revolutionaries, which at this time were either socialists, assimilationists, Haskalah, Enlightenment Nicks, uh, you name it. Uh, but he said he saw in them a holy drive. He said that they were seeking something that tradition, as it was being presented to them, could not offer them. They, they didn't find anything passionate or anything compelling in the Judaism which had existed. And there was a lack of a program to match the moral passion, which, is, which was the source of their confusion and their bitterness. He said their rebellion was a thirst for thought, reason, and for a richer, more fuller life of meaning and purpose. And so he validated their seeking. In the 1910s, he stated that in his journals, and he wrote uh, enormous amount, mostly journals which he at first kept private, which were his own spiritual journals, on thoughts ranging from everything from vegetarianism to revolution to nature to theodicy, Kabbalah, uh, the whole works. And um, there he stated that the heretical idealists were not sinners. They were souls from the world of tohu, of voidness, from the beginning of creation, when the light was too intense that it had shattered the vessels. And so in a sense, their intensity were shattering the vessels to bring about a newly created world which would come out rejuvenated and stronger and better. And he said, these souls of the world of Tohu are very great. They seek much from existence. They seek that which their vessels cannot endure. They seek a great light and their living ferment does not rest. They are revealed in, the, in their times and all the more so that these are the ends of days. And he said, these storms of upheaval, which he saw as the precursor to the messianic times, will bring bountiful rain. These dark, dark fogs will prepare great light. And so his view was that, drawn partially from Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lusato, the great 18th century Kabbalist, and also somewhat controversial figure, that the world is, a, the holy world has already gotten its tikkun, has already had its spiritual fixing, those who are holy. And so he said that that which is profane is that which not has, has not yet been woven into the fabric of the tikkun, of the fixing. And he said, therefore, the potential of those who are outside, those who are profane, is to be sacred, whereas the sacred is already, is already there. It doesn't have where to grow, and an almost reversal of the sacred and the profane. In later years, these types of ideas would raise many eyebrows and even lead for his books to be burnt in Jerusalem, but uh, they hadn't yet gotten wide dissemination. Uh, part of his ideological outlook on Zionism was that once again, as we said, this was the beginning of the messianic epoch. 
He was excited about the possibility of the reestablishment of the Sanhedrin, the great body of rabbis in Jerusalem, which would start to re-engage Jewish law in all areas of life. He couldn't envision Zionism without religion. And he was uh, lukewarm towards the religious Zionists, the Mizrahi movement, because he saw them lacking passion and he saw them being too accommodating to the secularists. So at the same time as he accepted and loved the secularists, his vision was for them all to become religious. And he did make attempts to go to now some of the second Aliyah, really secular Zionist kibbutzim. And some of them, he would go before Passover bringing matzah, and some of them simply kicked him out and refused to see him. So, uh, so it was challenging, but he never faltered in his vision, in his messianic vision, in his idealism. And that was the poet side of him. That was the visionary side of him, the person creating great visions for the future and not worrying so much how they were being implemented. Yet, uh, he did get dragged into politics and could not totally avoid it. Um, We'll talk about his politics in a second. Let me just finish about some of his Kabbalistic writings and his theology, his outlook. He says, what is holiness? He says, that which reveals the ultimate unit of things. And here we now go into his view on nature and the godliness being inherent and present in all of the world. He said, uh, with the abundance of the Holy Spirit, we feel how the divine spirit flows through everything, all walks of life, all the wills of people, all the worlds, all the thoughts, all the nations, all the creatures. And then he turns and says, and all the halachot of the Torah and the mitzvot, the practical and the intellectual, proceed. it all proceeds from the Torah and from the Holy Land, which gives it birth. So at the same time, he can be a universalist, seeing God in all of nature and all peoples, and at the same time, a particularist showing the specialness, the unmatched parallel role and status of the Jewish people. And he saw the divine light pulsing through nature, which is the land of Israel. The holiness within nature itself is the holiness of the land, he said. The divine presence that went into exile is ability to maintain holiness in the opposite of nature. And now he saw Jews returning to the land is bringing holiness back into nature. And like A.D. Gordon called on the secular kibbutzim to redeem the Jewish people through the physical, Rabbi Cook saw that having a, a role as well. Even the physical development of the people, working the land, sports, uh, he saw that as part of the tikkun, of the fixing of the Jewish people. And uh, his universal vision brought him to be a, uh, a vegetarian, which he viewed was the ultimate status of man. Interestingly enough, he himself did not advocate uni universal vegetarianism. And he was very afraid that people would use vegetarianism to, uh, to kind of uh, fulfill their moral feelings and duties. And that there was a danger that by elevating animals too high, they would bring the human value of life lower. And 
warning almost that people who might be vegetarians might also be blood spillers, paradoxically. And this eerily foreshadowed Adolf Hitler, may his name be cursed, who himself was prided himself on his vegetarianism and how he treated animals, and yet we know how he treated humans. So Rabbi Cook would avoid even killing insects, such was his sensitivity. And there are many stories of his great piety. Uh, in, uh, in the shtetls where he served as rabbi, the, his wife would have to instruct the, uh, those who gave out loans and pawnbrokers to stop allowing him to sign because he would simply sign away all of his uh, personal belongings if there was someone in need who came to him, needed to marry off their daughter or someone was sick. And, um, and uh, this was the extent of his piety. In World War I, he was stuck in Switzerland and London. He was on his way to the Agudat Israel, Agudas Israel Convention, the first establishing of an ultra-Orthodox movement. And uh, he was in Switzerland for two years. In 1916, went to London. And when 1917, the Balfour Declaration was declared by England, who had taken over Palestine after World War I, that it was to be set aside for a Jewish homeland. He was ecstatic, seeing this as the movement towards the messianic redemption. And yet at the same time, when Chaim Weizmann, the leader of the political Zionism, sent his delegate to, uh, to Rav Kook, they had very little to speak about. Because Rav Kook's vision wasn't to be engaged as a political Zionist. It was a visionary, uh, Zionism of redemption that he, that he yearned for and that he advocated. After the war, he was invited back to Israel uh, to be rabbi of Jerusalem. And this was very complex. Um, by the way, an interesting aside and another dimension of Rabbi Rav Cook. In London, he had the opportunity to visit the British Museum and to see the paintings of Rembrandt. Interestingly enough, Rembrandt lived near the Jewish community, painted Jews in his uh, paintings, and um, his view of aesthetics and art was also very unique. And he said in one of his letters, sorry, I'm gonna plug in, back up my phone. He said in one of his letters that um, the light in Rembrandt, that glow from his paintings was tapping into the original light of creation, which God had hidden after he separated darkness and light. So even in art, even in the physical world, he could see the sparks of redemption and the revealing of deeper inner lights. Um, after, so we were saying that then after the war, Rav Cook went off to Jerusalem to be the chief rabbi. Or, the head of the court of, Jeru of, the, of, of the rabbinic court in, uh, in Jerusalem. And this was a very uh, complicated situation because on the right were the ultra-Orthodox rabbis who were very critical of him. On the left were the secular Zionists who were, uh, appreciated his love but didn't feel like he was really in their camp either. And so in a sense, he was nishtahin nishtahir, as we say. He 
lived the life of the pious ultra-Orthodox Jew, uh, had the ideology of Zionism, a unique Kabbalistic outlook. There were some mainstream rabbis, notably Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank, uh, who supported him and who were kind of in the middle. And they're the ones who pushed for him to become uh, the chief rabbi. The British would then set up an official rabbinate, which he would take over and become the head of. And so he was constantly uh, pulled and constantly under pressure. Uh, the religious Zionists were disappointed that he wasn't really their ally. The anti-Zionists were wary of him, but preferred to have him to someone else. And until his reading, his, some of his writings were published. His son, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda, Yehuda Tzvi Kuk, uh, took, was his editor and started publishing more of his works along with one of his students, Rav Cohen, Rav David Cohen the Nazir. And when Orot came out in 1920, it caused a furor amongst the ultra-Orthodox. His books were burnt for this mingling of light and darkness and validating irreligiosity and how secularism might have more holiness and the redemptive quality of sports. And um, the Gera Rebbe, the great Hasidic Rebbe, came to Jerusalem and visited him and brokered a truce where Rabbi Cook retracted or backtracked of some of his most radical ideas. And the ultra-Orthodox uh, relented in their uh, attacks on him. Uh, unfortunately, in the late 1920s, Rabbi Sweden Sonnenfeld, uh, the ultra-Orthodox leader passed away and the zealots could no longer be held back. And they would burn effigies of him. People would throw buckets of water in his face as he was walking down the street and he would be hounded uh, over the years as the story we told at the beginning of Rabbi Arya Levin was as well. Tragic events had happened uh, as well. Uh, his daughter had fallen off the roof of a house and had passed away, uh, which of course broke him in ways which he never got over. Uh, the riots of 1929, where Jews were killed by the hundreds, terrible savagery on the part of the Arabs, the British just stood by. Rabbi Cook on Shabbat was frantically writing telegrams abroad to put pressure on the British to do something. And after the riots, he criticized the Mufti of Jerusalem he criticized the Mufti of Jerusalem for planning. He denied it. He said, look, it's only in certain places. That was the proof of it. But he refused to demonize all Arabs. But he didn't hesitate to stand up against the Mufti and to support Jews praying at the Western Wall, which they were being hounded by the Arabs, and um, tried to be... Uh, the advocate for the Jewish community in front of the British and for religious rights. As we mentioned, his son, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, uh, was by his side his whole life, redacting his writings. In the 20s already, they started the yeshiva, uh, Merkaz Harav, the center of the Rav, which did grow into 80 students, but never really took off, was underfunded during his life. But after he passed away in 1935, the movement started to gain momentum. His, some of him, he had brilliant students, Rabbi Chalap, Rabbi David Cohen, his son, 
And it really wasn't until 1967. This question is, is Rav Cook behind the settler movement and uh, the modern day political religious Zionism in its current incarnation? And to that, to answer that question, we see that the ideological beginnings of it are there. The unique holiness of the land, the redemptive error, uh, the, the, uh, the holiness of the holy sites in Israel and of all the endeavors, even of the Zionists. But it wasn't until post-1967 with the liberation of uh, Jerusalem and of Yudan Shomron, of what they call the West Bank, that has founded the Gush Emunim movement and started what today is viewed as the radical settler movement. The absolute sanctity of the land, uh, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook ruled, unlike most rabbis, that one cannot give up land for peace. And the labor government was also building settlements. But of course, uh, the religious settler movement was one of the main driving forces behind the now over 350,000 Jews living in these areas. And seeing it as the unfolding of the messianic epoch. So a brilliant figure, a paradoxical figure, a saintly figure. There's so much we can learn from Rav Cook. His passion, his poetry. Uh, I highly recommend reading his biography by Rabbi by Yehuda Mirsky. Uh, there's also his translated letters edited by Tzvi Feldman, which you can read, which are very inspiring. And these are the types of figures who could uh, have a breadth and a scope to encompass within their worldview intense spirituality and passion, and yet all aspects of the world not being open to a rejuvenation of the Jewish spirit through not shying away from modernity, but confronting it, not on its own terms, perhaps on his terms, but bringing it into his worldview, elevating it, and ultimately bringing holiness to the Jewish people. Uh, have a good evening, everyone. Next week, uh, join us again. We'll be talking about uh, another one of our great extraordinary Jewish personalities. 8 p.m. Oh, excuse me. 8 p.m. next week uh, is the night before Shavuot, and we'll be having a pre-Shavuot program uh, featuring Natan Sharansky, Dr. Micha Goodman, uh, Buji Herzog, and um, other uh, notable speakers. So, Please join us for that. And um, Monday night, we'll be continuing the Jewish Matters podcast. By the way, this talk will be found. In Facebook Live, we'll be talking about the afterlight notes from the other side, what happens after we leave this world. So thank you for joining once again and uh, tune in on the podcast.